0: Well, good morning. There's something great about, like Brent was talking about, gathering with the people of God in a corporate setting. And if you're with us just virtually right now, we are excited for the day when we will all gather together again. Um, So uh, my parents are out of town. My name is Shaler. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, My dad is the senior pastor. Some of you may be wondering about my hideous mustache, and uh, I'll explain it. Uh, If you know my mother, she is very particular, and I just got this wild whim that I wanted to know if they were going to tune in to the service, because I know that if I got up here like this, my mother would text me a strong rebuke over my sense of style, and she would not be able to help herself. And you wanna know what's funny? I got no text after the nine o'clock service, so those two slept in. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see if they're paying attention now on the 11 o'clock. Uh, I'm still I'm curious to see how that's gonna play out. Uh, my, they're visiting my sister in, in Atlanta, and what's funny, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, my sister sent me a text message last night. When I came in this morning, a couple people asked me, uh, "Are you as long-winded as your dad?" And I said, "No, I'm not. You know, you've never met a guy that can use more words to say so little in your entire life." But uh, so last night, my sister was filming my dad praying at dinner, and she has a daughter that's under just under two years old, my niece, and. Uh, As my dad's praying, my niece is sitting there with her hands folded in prayer, and he's going on, and he's going on, and she opens her eyes, and she looks at him, and she goes, Amen! (laughs) (laughs) That was last night. So, I just, (laughs) oh man. (laughs) Anyway. but he did ask me to share with you guys this morning, and uh, as I sat around and I prayed and tried to seek the Lord about what I wanted to share, uh, it was really... Uh, I was led to the story of Jesus calming the storm because as I sat around and thought about it, 2020 has a real, been, just been really weird. Um, and I would think that... Uh, a lot of us have encountered storms as a result of this of the current season that we're in, and storms that you probably didn't even realize that you were going to encounter. Some of them are the easy ones like job storms, and, and a lot of us uh, have been put in situations of financial hardship because of our job. Uh, a crazy one is how many uh, storms have come up as a result of being forced to spend that much time with your family. <laughs> and the tension that can arise as you never get to leave for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And you're not getting up and going to work in the morning, your kids aren't going to school in the morning, and you just sit around and hang out. And there have been some relational storms that we've encountered. It's just, it's just, it's just been weird. And so I, I just wanted to look at this passage of scripture and kind of apply it to our situation and everybody's kind of in a different situation but i I think there's some principles we can pull out of it um so before one more thing kind of one of my goals is uh, as i look at jesus sometimes the conservative temperament can really like to focus in on his power and his majesty and his authority and and all of that stuff, and that's all, that's all really good. And I know uh, sometimes the liberal temperament likes to hone in and focus in on his vulnerability and his humanity and his, his nurturing and his caring uh, ability. And, and I think one of my goals today is to, is to look at and realize that both of those things are true. And we you know, don't just need to focus and hone in on one side of Jesus. We need to look at all of, all of who he is and not try to make him fit into our box, but rather us reach to him. So, um, so let me pray, and then I'm going to read, and uh, we'll get going. So Heavenly Father, uh, please let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, I'm in Mark chapter 4. If you want to... Put the verses up on the screen. I'm starting in verse 35, and it just goes through the end of the chapter. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. He rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He says to His disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. All right. Um, The first thing I wanted to point out is that uh, this really happened. And I know that kind of seems like a simple point, especially for a lot of people that uh, are coming to church. Uh, Most of you are going to accept the Bible at face value, but if you've ever gone through a season in your life where you've struggled with some of that stuff, uh, I know I have. Let me just give me just a second to kind of let me tell you why I think this really happened. Uh, the first thing uh, is that when you look at the story, it's only like 150 words. It's very short, it's tremendously compact. And I just kind of want to point out that there's a lot of really unnecessary details. And the reason that that's important is because when you look at ancient literature and the way that it was written, Uh, A fictional story or a story that was to be legend left out a lot of these details. It just kind of was trying to move the plot along, move the main character along, and it wasn't uh, so specific. Let me just point out some of these details. The first one is it says evening came. So you're told what time this happened at. Uh, It says that he went along just as he was, so he didn't even change clothes. Like, who cares if he changed clothes or not? What's the point of... (laughs) All right, he says there were other boats. I didn't realize that when I really started studying this passage, I, every time I've thought of this story before, I just kind of thought of those guys on that boat, but there were others around him. I, I never really picked up on that. He says that he was in the stern asleep, so you're told what part of the boat he's sleeping on, and it says that he was asleep on a cushion. And the reason that all of these details are really significant is because this means that this is someone who saw this happen recounting the incident and passing it along to Mark. So this is, a, this is an eyewitness account. Like when you read old stories and you read legendary stories, like, you, like they don't say Zeus turned, changed into a pink toga before you threw a lightning bolt. Like nobody cares about that stuff. So I think that the details are actually really important and it's, and it's significant that, that real men, Witness this. And maybe women were on the other boats. It just doesn't mention them, but that doesn't mean that they, they weren't there. So it's a real thing. Here, here's another thing that I thought was kind of cool. Um, and I read this somewhere. Sometimes you try to read a bunch of stuff. You can't remember where you found it from. It was in some commentary somewhere. Uh, but it was talking about uh, Jesus's critics early on uh, in the early stages of Christianity, the first, you know, few hundred years. What's fascinating is that Uh, Some of the critics, like the philosopher Celsus was one that I came across, none of those guys ever dared to deny the miracle working power of Jesus. And the reason that they didn't dare deny his miracle working power is because they were so close to when those events actually happened, there were still so many people around that actually knew about them and saw them. So for them to try to deny that, there were so many people that were going to be able to look at them and say, that's shenanigans because I saw it. I saw this happen with my own eyes. And what is crazy is that they would deny his divinity, they'd really work hard against that, they would try to say that Jesus was not the Christ. They didn't touch the miracles because everybody knew that they happened. So instead, they tried to explain the miracles away, just like in a modern day, we might still try to explain the miracles away. So they said that uh, Jesus was able to perform miracles because as a child, he fled to Egypt, and in Egypt he learned all that black magic. You know it's black magic, I mean, come on, really? And what I love about this is that the miracle working power of Jesus through two thousand years has not changed, but the explanations of people trying to attack it has, but he 's stayed the same I, I, I thought that was I thought that was really cool, so um, all right, so this really happened, and I think that you need to really grasp that it really happened uh, and, and so that when you're facing your storm, you can know what Jesus is capable of. So I wanna talk kind of about the, the magnitude of his power. Um, so they're on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, if you've ever been there, it's a really cool place. Kind of on the southwestern edge, there's like a, a ridge of mountains and in there is a cleft. And I've been fortunate enough to go several times um, and they're called the Horns of Hitton. And so what happens, and I remember Pastor Dez told me this, I got to go on a trip with him a long time ago, and I remember when we were on the Sea of Galilee, he pointed them out. He said, hey, you see, hey, you see that right there? And of course, whenever you go on an Israel trip with Dez, you would just want to sit next to him because he would just drop like nuggets after nugget after nugget, and you're just like, golly. And he said, do you see that? That cleft right there, those are called the Horns of Hitton. And Uh, The reason that you hear about so many storms on the Sea of Galilee is because there would be wind that would build up around that, and it would come down through that cleft, and it would come into the valley where the lake, the Sea of Galilee is, and it would always be be choppy and always be windy. And the reason that I'm bringing that up is that these guys got into the storm and they were, they were terrified. They were scared of the storm, but this is not like the first storm that they encountered. They were in storms all the time. So this must have been a really, really, really bad storm. And so Jesus gets up and uh, he rebukes two things. He rebukes the wind and, and he rebukes the waves. And uh, in our translation, it says, quiet, be still. Uh, the King James says, peace, be still. And that just seems very nice and proper. And, and I've, I like how st- uh, sometimes when you try to really dig back into the original language, our English translations have, have made them much more polite than, than it really was. And so probably a more accurate translation of what Jesus did was he got up there and said, hey, shut up. <laughs> shut up. St- shut up and stay shut up. And so it's, you know, that has much more impact. And uh, the wind died and then the waves calmed. And so I think the disciples, one of the reasons they were so amazed is it talks about this calm that comes immediately because, you know, sometimes when the wind dies down, uh, my my wife's family has some property on a lake and we go out to the lake and when the wind dies down, it'll still be choppy on the lake for, for a really long time. But in this instance, he stops the wind and then it's immediately calm. Like, that's crazy to have that kind of authority. So it reminded me of a, a crazy story which completely pales in, con- in comparison to Jesus having the authority to control nature. But... Uh, when I was umpiring in the minor leagues, I was in, uh, I was in Dayton, I think it was Dayton, Ohio. And uh, so sometimes, like players, when they're in the major leagues and they get hurt, they'll come down and they'll rehab. Well, that happens sometimes to umpires, too. And they'll throw a, a major league umpire in a minor league game, and those guys hate working minor league games. They hate it. But it's good for us, because we can learn a lot and all that stuff. We did get to learn a lot. So he comes down. And we're getting ready. We walk on the field. And as we walk on the field, you know, this guy's got like 20 or 25 years in the big leagues. And the manager of one of the teams sees him. And he's like, hey, what's going on? I haven't seen you in forever. The manager played in the big leagues for also a long period of time. And uh, one of the things that you don't, in baseball, a lot of fans don't see is that you you really do build relationship with players and umpires because you see each other every day for like 20 years so everybody knows everybody you call each other by your first names and um and you, you don't see a lot of that on on the tv but there's a there's a lot of things you don't see on tv um so they're all having a powwow. we walk down we're at the plate meeting they just can't you know i mean it's like a family reunion and you're just like can we just start the game so finally we get going i run down to third base and uh, at some point during the game, pretty early, there was a player that comes up who was a first round draft pick. And so those guys are, when an organization drafts somebody in the first round, you're looking at like a five, um, back then it was three, four, $5 million investment. It's probably more now. I haven't really kept up. So, so they treat those guys, we call them bonus babies. We treat, th- they treat those guys a little extra special I mean, they don't want them to break a nail. I mean, it's just ridiculous the length that they go to to roll out the red carpet for these 19-year-old kids making $6 million. So as an umpire, uh, if you started getting on, you could get on to a lot of players, but if you started getting on to like, someone that was that they had a big investment in, that the club had a big investment in, the manager would be very quick to come out and defend it because they didn't want the player to get ejected because they want him to keep playing the game so he can keep developing and all that stuff. So this bonus baby comes up to bat somewhere in the middle of the game. Big league umpire rings him up on strike three. So you got someone with 20 years in the big leagues, someone that's like their second year in in A ball. And this kid starts popping off to, to this umpire, which that's not a good idea. Not to someone in the big leagues. And, and so I'm standing back watching him. like, I just kind of want to see how this plays out. So the manager that had the big powwow before the game with the umpire starts coming out and starts screaming. He's like, hey, who do you think you are? You can't talk to him that way. And so I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, I thought these guys were friends. Now he's coming out and defending his player. So... He, he comes out and he runs out on the field, tries to get the player out because he doesn't want him to get ejected. And, he, and then he starts yelling at his player and not the umpire. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could never get away with that. Like he said, you don't know who this guy is. He's got 20 years in the big leagues. You're going to be lucky if you ever make it that far. You don't talk to somebody that's got that much time and, that, and just rips this kid a new one. And I was just standing back there like, gosh, I wish that would happen for me. (laughs) I mean, but the amount of respect and the authority that was recognized for someone that had had that long of a tenure at the major league level was significant. And, I mean, it's just a little silly story that's kind of funny, but when you, like, then look at the magnitude of Jesus and the amount of authority and respect for him to shut down nature is a really big deal. And it, it just made me think of that stupid story in Dayton, Ohio. So, I mean, it was impactful to me because I recognize that's something that I will never be able to get away with. And I'm sure like those disciples are standing there saying, man, that's something we are never going to be able to wait, get away with. The magnitude of his authority, the magnitude of his power is a big deal. Ugh. All right. Um, The next thing I want to look at is uh, when he calmed the storm. Not only was it a big event, it was also Jesus revealing, one of the times he revealed to to the disciples that he was God. And if you're a reader of the Old Testament, like those disciples were, you will know that when it talks about the wind, the sea, and the storm— it means more than just the wind, the sea, and the storm. The sea is oftentimes representing uh, chaos and disruption and all the things that are going crazy in, in the world. And that's why I think it's interesting in Revelation 21, uh, it talks about in the new heaven and the earth, and the new earth, there's going to be no sea. And, and I don't think that that means there's not going to be water. I think what it's saying is it's not going to be chaotic. It's going to be much different than this world that we're living in. So when you see, when the disciples see Jesus calming the sea and removing chaos just in a moment, I have to think that that it wasn't just a sign of Him displaying great power, but it was a sign of Him saying, "I, I am the power, and I think their minds went to Psalm 29. Um, excuse me, Psalm 29. Briefly, talks it says, "The God of glory thunders; the Lord sits enthroned above the flood. He is enthroned as king forever." So when they saw God, or when they saw Jesus, stop this storm. I think their minds went there, and they said, why is he able to, to do this? It's because he's the one that's actually doing the thundering. He is not displaying great power. He's saying, I actually am power, and any act of power outside of me is nothing but on loan from me. And so I think that they had this really big moment of realization because if you go back to the text, it talks about they were scared in the storm, And then Jesus calms the storm, and then they became terrified. You know, you'd think it would go opposite. You'd think that you'd start to feel better after the storm went away, but they went from being scared to being absolutely terrified because they witnessed the actual divine presence of God. And so I think that there is a theological point, and I think that there is a practical point. I think the theological point, they were scared because they were in the presence of, of the storm power, but now they realize they are in the presence of God himself. And it reminds me of when Moses was up on the mountain and the glory of God was revealed through the fire, he hit the deck and he was terrified. When Job, uh, when the glory of God was revealed to Job through the wind, he was terrified. And I think that these guys are seeing the glory of God revealed to them in the sea, and they're absolutely terrified. The practical point is, and I'm going to come, try to come back to this, is that sometimes the solution to the storm is a lot more terrifying than the actual storm itself. Um, so the, my, my last thing, and I kind of want to tie some of that stuff up, uh, when you look at the storm, I was talking about His power, but I also said I wanted to talk about how Jesus cares for us. Those guys went to Jesus, and they said, hey, Master, do something. Or I'm sorry, they didn't say, Master, do something. They said, don't you care that we're drowning? And the thing is, is that for them to say that, they're going through the storm, and, and I think that they've drawn a wrong conclusion. And I think I have to be very careful, because I think sometimes, many times in my life, I'm Careful of, the, or can be guilty of the same thing. I'm going through life and I, I think I've encountered a storm, and I, I say to myself, God, where are you? Don't you care about what I'm going through? And when I look at what happened, Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and, and then he rebukes them for accusing him of not caring. And I find this kind of interesting, and I've really been thinking a lot about this, because Jesus is not an irritable person. Like, if you want to see irritability, go walk through the accounting department when you're supposed to turn in some receipts. It's like running the gauntlet. You think I'm kidding. But look how patient Jesus was with the woman at the well. Look how patient he was with the woman caught in adultery. Look how patient he was with those crazy tax collectors that were just taking everybody's money. Like, but then he, he rebukes them and says that they, that they accuse him of not caring. And it kind of reminded me of, a, of another story, of a, an encounter that I had with a girl accusing her dad of not caring. I was, uh, I was in Salzburg, Austria once, been, been a couple of times, it's a great city. And uh, I was with my friend, we were in our, I was in my early 20s and we're backpacking through Europe, stop in Salzburg. Salzburg is the place where the Sound of Music was filmed. And uh, so me and my buddy went on the Sound of Music tour. And let me just tell you, that's the best morning you've ever had in your entire life. Like, if you are in a bad mood, on the Sound of Music tour, going and seeing all the sites where it was filmed, then you're the problem and it's not the tour. Cause like you get on the, you get on a bus and just to let you know how joyful and delightful it was, even like you get on the bus, they start singing the Do Re Mi song and I have confidence and like I even participated. Yeah. And I don't like to sing. But I just, you know, it's, it's, it, it's like walking down Main Street USA with a cup of coffee. I mean, just, everything at that point in life is great on the Sound of Music Tour. I loved it. So this girl, uh, me and my buddy saw this girl, and she was in a bad mood. And you're just like, how is this possible? What's wrong with this girl? She's just being a brat. But about 30 minutes in, we nicknamed her the Pretentious Princess, and and. And she's just wearing her parents out and just, I don't want to be here. Why are we doing this? And just the whole time, and you're just like, everybody else is having the time of their life. What is wrong with you? So, and I don't know what had happened all in their trip to for them to get to that point. Maybe they had had some drama in the last couple days. Maybe she was jet lagged. I, I have no idea. Uh, so we get to the end of the tour, and they drop you off like at this, they drop you off where... Uh, the garden scene happened where they run through the garden and sing do re mi and you're just like this is like a glimpse of heaven i love this garden and so this girl is just still wearing her dad out for like four hours and so finally you know he's a little bit ahead of her and she's behind him and i don't know what they're fighting about but she goes don't you even care about me and he just stopped he turned around i think he just had enough and he goes I have joyfully disrupted my life for you for years. <laughs> for me to haul your rear end to Europe on a family vacation, and for you to sit here and think that I don't care just because I got you up early and we went on a sound and music tour as a family, who do you think you are? I feel used by you. And I'm, I mean, it's just like <gasps> me and my buddy were like, it's time to go to the gift shop. <laughs> So sometimes I think that when you look at God as Father and He gives you good gift after good gift after good gift, and finally you get to that point where your will crosses His and He sends something that isn't a good gift, and you're in a storm, that's not the time to say, Don't you care? Because I just, I don't, that's what these disciples did, and I don't see him being sympathetic with them. It's like that dad didn't sit down at the garden and be like, well, honey, I'm just so sorry that we're in Europe on the sound of music. You know what? He just let her have it. Here's the point. If you start with a premise that the care of Jesus will not allow you to go through storms, then all of your conclusions about Jesus are going to be wrong. If you start with the wrong premise and think that because you're in the storm right now or whenever, that's not a good place. That's not a good starting place. You need to know that he cares for you even though you're in the middle of a storm. So it reminds me... uh, Elizabeth Elliott tells a story. Elizabeth Elliott was the wife of uh, Jim Elliott, who was a famous missionary, and she was up uh, in the UK, so I think it was Scotland or something, and she ran into a shepherd who uh, had some sheep, and what he would do was the shepherd would stick these sheep in a vat of insecticide so that when, and he would take them out, and and she mentioned how the sheep were just going nuts and screaming and hated it and all this stuff, but so that when the bugs and stuff came, they weren't gonna get bit and and they wouldn't swell up, which could eventually lead to their death. And so the shepherd in the process was not explaining to the sheep what was happening. (laughs) The shepherd was doing what needed to be done because he loved them, and they might have been miserable in the process. And when you're in the middle of a storm, it's the most fun you never want to have again. <laughs> but that doesn't. To think that God, who is much higher and much greater and, and, than than a shepherd in Scotland was, he he has you. So here's here's kind of what I, how I want to end this and. Um, Here's what I've learned. When I encounter a storm, and I feel like I've kind of been in some recently, the thing that I've learned, and this is why I say that Jesus cares for us, is that the storm isn't the problem. It's the foundation that's the problem. Because in Matthew 7, it talks about two guys. One built their house on the rock, The other built their house on the sand, and a storm came, and one stood up, and the other fell down. And when you're going through a storm in your life, even if you have a good foundation, it's still going to hurt. When you go through a relational storm, it still hurts. When you go through a financial storm, it still hurts. When you go through a what in the world is our country in storm, it still hurts. But if you have the right foundation, it's not debilitating, and so sometimes when you encounter a storm and it is completely debilitating you and you're screaming and crying out to Jesus, don't you care? Maybe he's looking back at you and saying, I do care, but we just have some foundation work that we need to do. And this is me lovingly and gent- gently coming along and the storm is diagnosing that. And that's what I think this is. Um, I noticed that Jesus calmed the storm with a word, and you've got to build your foundation on the Word of God. And if nothing I said made any sense this morning, John Newton summarizes this passage up way better than I did in a hymn, and he said, His love in time past forbids me to think, He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. By prayer let me wrestle, and He will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm.